All right, great. Thanks, Peter. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If you're new to our church, like Ellen said before, we are really glad you're, you're with us. Happy summer. Uh, hope you're having a great um, hot week and <laughs> staying cool as much as you can and that you all have AC. All right. Uh, but we are in uh, 1 Timothy right now as a church. If you um, are just joining us, this is a series we're going to be in through uh, the rest of summer, actually. It ends right before Labor Day, which is kind of a, a neat uh, ending point for us. So we'll start something new after that. Uh, but First Timothy, uh, if you remember, this is just a book like any book in the Bible. It's about Jesus, ultimately. It's about the church. It is written um, by a pastor to a pastor about being a pastor. There are three of these uh, particular books in the New Testament. We call them pastoral letters or epistles because uh, they're uniquely kind of contextually uh, written uh, in, in that way. So uh, there are times in this series, I've said this last week, that I'll kind of step aside and talk to pastors in the room, those who will be pastors, but it's uh, much bigger than that. Most of you know this if you've read it before. It is for the whole church. Uh, it's about the church. Uh, because of that, uh, we kind of get this sense in the book, even right away, that church is not an optional, indiscriminate thing to God. Uh, he, uh, even though church is uh, it's a good thing that we look very different uh, globally, uh, sort of, you know, not just within the city, uh, but uh, especially amongst, the, you know, throughout the U.S., but globally as well, churches can look and do look different uh, in terms of how they gather and how they're governed. There is a gray area for what uh, sort of is allowed, and yet it's not, it's not um, you know, uh, indiscriminate either. It's not optional. God cares about certain boundaries. He cares about certain things being said. He cares about certain behaviors being uh, you know, lived out by believers in community. So uh, because that's the case, and because all of us are Christian, or we're in a church, Christian or not, we're, right now we're in a church, but to all you are believers, in community with other Christians, underneath the banner of God's grace, th- this book is for you. Um, so we, uh, today, actually going back a couple of weeks, um, Peter is going to preach this in a couple of weeks actually, so we're not here yet, but I mentioned this. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the church, which he calls here the household of God. So you get, to get this kind of benchmark, uh, capstone, cornerstone kind of um, idea here, contextual idea that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who's uh, kind of a protege of Paul's. He's a young pastor who followed Paul around a while, uh, and then now he's left behind in the city of Ephesus to put into order what Paul left there when he started a church there. Uh, now he's going to be kind of this first pastor. Um, but Paul writes back saying that it's, again, these, these aren't indiscriminate things. The church isn't just this random collection of believers. We gather, we uh, give to each other, we love each other, we're, we, we're here to care for each other. Um, but there's supposed to be pastors in churches. There's supposed to be ch- uh, pastors that teach and teach certain things. Um, we talked about church discipline a little bit ago as well. What, what about believers that just leave, leave the church and leave the faith? What do you sort of do with that? That kind of came up. Um, and many other things as well. So I put up a whole slew of questions a couple weeks ago that this book will, will address. But this is a key verse. Uh, Paul's writing because behavior in the church, and not just like individual behavior, it just means how the church should look, uh, how the church should kind of like, you know, look when, it, when, when you gather in large and small uh, ways, but especially um, on Sundays. So today, uh, Paul is going to address men and women, each in turn, and how each gender, uh, or how gender differences play a role in how churches gather, and even how the gospel, and I'll talk about this a little bit later on, but how the gospel is shaped in both masculine and feminine ways. 
Um, one of the things we're going to see today is, is that the Bible is many things, but it's not androgynous. Uh, the, the big reason there is that God is not androgenized with us. Uh, the, though we are made in his image and though those of us who are saved are one with him through Christ, we are still altogether distinct from him. He is not us and we are not him, just like a man is not a woman and a woman is not a man. So gender distinctions exist to mirror this idea by God's design. Uh, all right, so today we're going to talk about gender and preaching. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, among other things. This is kind of the big thing uh, Paul talks about. But uh, we're going to start with the less controversial. We're going to move to the more controversial and then end with the flat-out weird. So that's our journey today um, in, in this passage. So, uh, but but in, all, in all seriousness, uh, we, uh, you know, we've been here 15 years. I, I've been um, doing this for 15 years. Uh, this is by far the most controversial passage I've ever preached on 15 years. We've talked about this in classes. We've, you know, touched on people, asked us about this. Uh, those of you who are, who've read 1 Timothy um, know what, I'm, what we're going to talk about today. Uh, if you don't, you'll see here in a second. But... Um, but, we, but this is God's word to us, and, and, and I, I would um, sort of, caution's not the right word, well, maybe, but um, remind you that where there's weird and where there's surprises and where there's counterculturalness, um, there's usually Jesus in those things. So have your antennas up for him. Uh, this is uh, a, not a classroom today because we're preaching. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Actually, preaching and teaching are different things. I, my, my task today as your pastor is to preach the gospel to you through the lens of this passage, not just to teach you concepts and definitions and terms. That's good. That's for a classroom, though. Though I will do that uh, today. Teaching uh, always, preaching always encompasses teaching, but they are different things. And um, if you didn't know that, I'd encourage you to sort of start to think that and believe that. It will change how you listen to sermons. Uh, you'll um, put the pencil down a bit more and start to hear God's voice call out to you rather than just uh, tuck a definition up in your brain. Uh, it's, uh, it's different. <clears throat> both are good. Both are needed in the church, but, but they're different. All right? Let's move into the, uh, the first piece. I'm going to read this in three sections today, uh, not all at once. So we're going to move through it slowly. But let's read verses 8 to 10 first. So uh, Paul says, I desire, remember writing to Timothy, the pastor of this church, um, about how he wants Christians to live and behave and to exist in community, all right? Verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. All right, so he starts here by saying, men, don't be angry or fight with each other, but pray. And women, don't dress immodestly, but adorn yourselves with godliness and good works and, and love and faith. All right, so not that both of these sides of the passage can't be applied to both genders. Obviously, women get angry, and obviously, men uh, dress immodestly at times, right? Uh, but there's a sense to which each gender may need to hear their respective verse, a bit more than the other, which is why he says men do this, and then he changes and says women especially hear this instruction a little bit later on, and not all of you equally <laughs> uh, hear this, even though that's not wrong to do, and I'm kind of going to do that today, uh, but I still want to honor the fact that there's a particular call to men here and a particular uh, to women. More important, though, to see is that there is a gospel reason for both of these instructions, uh, Paul is not concerned here with aimless morality, but with a spirit-filled life. 
a life lived out of the fact that we're saved by grace, not by works. And if we really believe that, if we really are, it's just going to or should shape the way you think about how you talk, about how you interact with other people, and about even about how you dress. All right, so here's what I mean. If you kind of clicked on the hyperlink of that first idea, we'll start with men. Uh, basically, what Paul is saying is men of the church, don't be angry because God is not angry with you. Did you know that? Did you know that he is slow to be angry with you? So why are you quick to be angry with your spouse or with your friends? He's patient with you. Because of Christ, he is slow to be angry. He is the slowest to anger being in the universe. And yet he has all the right in the universe to be angry with us. He chose to be incredibly slow. Do we men exhibit that with how we interact with other people? If you are full of his spirit, live as though that's true and reflect the gospel with how you diffuse problems with gentleness. Like uh, we would say, the gentle answer of Christ stilled the seas of our sin. Uh, when God's ultimate answer to our sin and rebellion was not condemnation, but first patience and love through Jesus Christ dying in our place. Men, you are loved. Uh, it's, it's okay not to always get what you want. Because you're loved, it's okay not to win, except at the pentathlon, which is important to win the, the trophy. Just kidding. Uh, no, it's, it's okay, though, to not always win the debate. It's, it's okay to be normal. You have Jesus. Uh, everything because of that in your life, ultimately everything's going to be okay. And so what he says to men here is, men, use your words to pray and not use your words to fight or to quarrel because to quarrel and fight so much is to live as though you have something to prove. And you don't in Christ. In Christ, everything is dealt with. It's done. You are okay in Jesus. And so live as though that's true. And part of how that looks in men and women's lives, of course, but in a man's life is uh, to be gentle. It's actually one of the marks of being a pastor, which will come up next week, is when churches look for pastors, Paul says, make sure those men are gentle. If they're not gentle, they shouldn't be uh, called in into that role. All right. It's similar here with the instructions to women to dress modestly. And I would say to, uh, to all of you, of course, again, but to, you, to women in the room especially, so, so we'll look at this now, is um, don't get too caught up on the particulars here. Uh, what's appropriate culture to culture or modest or immodest culture to culture changes with time. Uh, if you feel like, oh my gosh, I have braided hair right now. Can I, should I, can I stay in the room? Uh, don't think that. Um, the Christ, what, what he's saying, it, this has more to do with the heart. He's saying, Christian women, dress modestly because you are saved by grace. You don't need to turn men's heads anymore. Because you know that in Christ, you are saved. You didn't need to turn God's head with your works. Uh, in fact, uh, we would affirm in the gospel that Jesus turned his head to the ground when he took his last breath on the cross for you in love. Um, and also, you don't need to buy the most expensive clothing because who are you trying to impress? Uh, in the gospel, you don't have to impress God, right? So I think there, there's a way that I think to think about our lives and even, even what we dress, uh, what we buy, um, again, men and women, but maybe especially women here, is uh, to live out of the fact that um, we are loved in spite of our messiness, uh, th there might be implications here for social media use as well. I was talking to Leah and Emily this week about this, just getting their perspectives as women who work here. 
Uh, they actually brought this up. I thought it was interesting. I, I think that's true. Uh, obviously, Paul's not talking about Instagram here because it didn't exist. Uh, but, the, but there might be implications for this, right? Is what, are you modestly using Instagram or immodestly, right? Um, and just to think about that. Um, again, we are saved by grace, not by impressing God with our obedience. If you believe that, it will... It might seem like, oh, they're totally different. They're actually not. I mean, downstream of believing the wrong thing about whether we are here to impress God with our works or not might come with how you dress. And I think Paul knows that. And so he says he wants churches then to be full of men and women to sort of act out and live out of the gospel by, by the Spirit. Because immodest, costly attire says, look at me, I'm amazing. Whereas modest clothing says, don't look at me, look at God. Uh, isn't he amazing? Look at how hard, you know, immodest clothing says, look at how hard I've worked to be able to buy these clothes, which again highlights the works of our hands, right? Whereas modest clothing says, look at the, look at the works of God's hands, the nail-pierced ones on the cross. Um, it says, I'm saved by grace as a modest sinner, not by cleaning myself up. And we could go on. I'm just trying to give other words to this, right? So you see that these are not just aimless, random rules. Uh, you know, th this is to say that the gospel has the power to change everything in your life. Everything. It, it, it changes everything, how we view everything. Uh, and, and Paul is starting to touch on a few things here when it comes to prayer and anger and words and dress and modesty and even social media. So, um, all right. Now let's switch gears and move to the more the more controversial section, which is verses 11 to 14, all right? Like I was saying before. Paul continues by continuing to talk actually to women, so he's spinning off on verses 9 and 10. He says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. All right, clear as mud, right? Barely need to preach it. No, quite the opposite. Um, just a few things, though, to start uh, right off the bat is one, and I kind of got at this before, I was hinting at it. These verses are obviously incredibly countercultural, right? Um, I, I think to the counter to the religion of our day, which I would say is fairness and equality above all. I think that's what, as Americans, we bend the knee to. Not saying that we do as Christians, of course, we don't, but in general, our culture, right? I would say fairness and equality above all is uh, the God of America, and other things, money, other things as well. But, um, but those are a couple of big ones that this flies in the face of, unashamedly. Um, so th this is, a, now I'll get to this in a second, but this is one of those moments we really swim upstream from the river of culture. Like we, like we are not, there are times the church swims with culture. This is not one of those times uh, clearly uh, here, right? And I mentioned the whole idea of androgyny before and how the Bible is, um, is not that. Uh, second thing is wherever you're coming from with this stuff, Christian or not, uh, let me just say that we have our own perspective on this passage, not that we invented it or anything like that. We just, we, we have a, a position on this verse and like verses uh, in, in the Bible, but you don't have to agree with us as pastors here uh, to be um, a part of our church, happily a part of our church, uh, very involved in our church, maybe in the leading in our church. Uh, all of our pastors agree 
every single, we, want, we wanted that as a church. We said, this is not something that we're just going to sort of say open-handed for pastors. We wanted our pastors to completely and totally agree. Uh, we've seen churches, because they didn't do that, completely split and divide when pastors bumped heads on this. So pastors all agree on this. You don't have to, though. Um, though the third thing, though, with that said, is I want to encourage you guys to keep an open mind. Um, Paul starts here by saying, using the word submissiveness, and that's a word not just for women here, but for men and women towards each other. From 1 Peter and Ephesians, it talks about submissiveness in general is a very Christian trait. Uh, it's hard. It's very hard to do as humans. It's hard to do as American Christians when we're, we're taught so much of the opposite. But um, I, I would say a submissive heart to what God is saying to us here about the church, about preaching, about order, about sin, and about gender Believing he knows what's best for us is paramount. Rather than feeling like we need to explain away or apologize for passages like this, um, you know, we need to resist cramming this verse into the image of 21st century American enlightened thinking. Uh, Because that would just be to say that we're making the Bible into our image, right? Uh, we're, We're crafting into what we think God should be like and what he should have said if he was enlightened like we are. Um, that's true for, of course, anything you would say in, in the Bible. It's not to say there aren't parts of the Bible that aren't principle-based, anything like that. I'm just saying here, this is not one of those, those places. All right. Now, with all that said, uh, there is more than meets the eye to this passage. And as always, when we consult particular passages of the Bible, we need to ask what other parts of the Bible also speak to those matters and how they help us interpret the passage at hand. So um, I want to walk this as clearly as I can in limited time, but understand that I don't have time to pick up every single rock and look under it uh, today. So if you want to talk more after church or another time, uh, please let me or another leader know, um, we, another pastor or leader here, we would love uh, to talk more. Um, and we, I know we say that stuff a lot, but we really, really, really mean that. Please, um, please take us up on it. Okay, so here we go. I want to talk about this uh, off three things. What he means, what he doesn't mean, and why he says it. Uh, ultimately, all right, um, why, how, how he grounds his argument. So the first piece is what he means. He means to say women are not permitted to preach or to teach with authority over men in mixed gender uh, church gatherings. Th- this is the traditional view, the majority view of the global church for most of the past 2,000 years. In fact, it, it wasn't uh, until about 50 years ago, about 1969, 1970, that more progressive takes on this passage rose up in the West. So if you don't have that, if people don't have this perspective on top, you hold a very, very young view. Um, a Western view, very American view, a uh, very young view uh, in, in the grand scheme of, of, of history. But, but again, before then, before 50 years ago, and, and today too, of course, because we still hold this, many churches do, but before then, Christians from all over the world, from every strand of Christianity, including different cultures, nations, languages, traditions, you name it, all understood this passage to mean what it actually says, that women are not permitted to preach or hold the highest levels of teaching authority in a church. At Hiawatha, so it's probably clear at this point, but at Hiawatha, we hold this view as well. Our pastoral team is all men. Um, and that team does all the preaching here because they are the preachers and the highest teachers of the church. So preaching is reserved for the men on that team. One thing I'm not going to spin off on today, this is such a complex issue, that also relates to uh, who should hold the office 
of overseer and should they be the only preachers in the church? Uh, next week, Chris Thompson, another one of our pastors here, is going to preach on more of that um, because chapter 3 talks about that in, in 1 Timothy. So just suffice it for today that we lump eldership and, and pastorship in preaching. So to talk about one is kind of talk about the other uh, as well. So if you weren't aware of that, just kind of be aware that's, that's where we're coming from as a church, but uh, more on that uh, next week. All right, so this is what he means, just to be as simple as possible. Now, what he doesn't mean is, is also important. And I want to start by, by saying this, which is kind of obvious because, you know, we implied it before, but he doesn't mean to teach the predominant non-traditional view today that says Ephesus was full of false teaching women, so this restriction applies to them alone or maybe some variation of that. So the predominant non-traditional or progressive view on the passage, other than to say Paul was wrong, some people believe that, Paul, the Bible's mistaken here, uh, Paul made an error, uh, so we just shouldn't believe this anymore. Uh, some people believe that, which is very unorthodox, of course, but some believe that. Or, or to say God has literally changed, that's what we call process theology, God is in process, so what he was here in the first century, he is no longer that. And so we should change with God. Uh, the idea that God is mutable, uh, it's actually a very scary doctrine. Uh, it's not biblical. But uh, if you believe that, then that would be another perspective. Or if you had a trajectory hermeneutic, which would be to say God intended not to say what he's saying here, um, but it would have been too offensive for him to say it, so he said this instead, but he intended this. He intended women to be able to preach. So, but he intended to traject his, the idea to this idea here, um, also a very dangerous interpretational approach to the Bible in general. Uh, but if you have any of those perspectives, that, that would be, those are unorthodox. Um, but aside from that, someone who still believes the Bible is God's word, uh, the, the predominant non-traditional view uh, would be to say this, that there are women in Ephesus who were false teachers and this preclusion only applied to them. There are a few different versions of that perspective and I don't have time to unpack them all today. But they're all some version of the view that binds what Paul says to culture alone. All right, but here's the problem with that, with that perspective. The, the problem is it's really hard to argue for it, both historically and biblically. Historically, there's little evidence that the Ephesian church was overrun by a group of false teaching women. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, if you just look in the book itself, the name of the two false teachers in chapter 1, you guys remember this a couple weeks ago, when Paul says, the two men who have made a shipwreck of their faith, they were men, right? They weren't women. So it's actually a hugely, hugely problematic thing to say that historically, when Paul never says it, the letters never say it, um, but, you know, again, the one place we do see false teaching come up, the names are not women. Um, biblically, though, it's stronger because biblically, um, it just does not sound like Paul is being specific in his instructions, right? But very broad. He says women, not some women. And, he ground, and more than that, he grounds his argument in the pre-fall creation narratives in reference to Adam and Eve, uh, which is about as cosmic or all-encompassing of a rationale as you can set out because we're all, all of us, descended from them. More on that later. All right, so that's kind of the first angle. I want to like actually uh, come at this from a slightly different angle though here as well with the next few things uh, just for clarity. And that would be to say, Paul is not saying that women can't teach anywhere. Uh, we, we know from elsewhere that women are called to teach other women in Titus 1 as well as children. 
And we know that non-authoritative forms of teaching also exist in the church for both genders. So think about Priscilla uh, teaching Apollos, a man in Acts 18, who's not condemned for it. Um, Think also of Colossians 3.16, which says, teach and admonish one another. Same author, Paul, who wrote 1 Timothy, also says in Colossians 3, all of you, men and women, teach each other and encourage each other uh, generally in the gospel. So you have, you have that as well. Um, relatedly, it, Paul's not saying that quiet means silent in every way when anything church-related is going on. It can't mean that from what we see other women doing uh, narratively, descriptively, um, in the letters in the book of Acts. Paul has clearly something very specific going on in 1 Timothy 2, church gatherings with both genders present with authoritative preaching going on. It's very specific. Um, <clears throat> four, that preaching and teaching are the same thing. Uh, they are different Greek words that mean different things, which helps us understand how there can be a broad call to teach one another uh, to the whole church. All of you, all of us, teach one another. And yet a restrictive call to only let male elders preach in mixed gender gatherings at the same time. Think like Venn diagram, if that helps you. They're different orbs. Caruso and Didasco are the Greek words, but they, they, they mean different things. That's why they're like in the same sentence sometimes in the Bible, but they're translated differently. Uh, it says Jesus did this. He taught and he preached. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're different. And I can't spin off on that for five minutes here uh, today uh, any more than that, but I'd love to elsewhere if you'd like to hear more. Then last, probably most importantly, He's not saying that women are less valuable, less intelligent, or less gifted um, when it comes to uh, public speaking, teaching, leading, etc. All right, so depending on where you guys are coming from, this may be hard for some of you to believe, but this, is, this passage, the Bible itself, but this passage is not a misogynist, misogynistic text. This is not about oppressing or holding down women. Uh, it is about God's heart. This is what it's about. And I'm going to say this now, and we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking this. But here's what I think is going on, what many do. It, what this is about is it's about God's heart for the church, but more than that, it's about God's heart for what is symbolized in a church gathering during a sermon. It's about God's heart for what is symbolized in a church gathering during a sermon. All right? Let's start to unpack this a bit more now by looking at the Why? Why does Paul say this? He doesn't just say it, right? But he gives a reason. Verse 13 starts with the word for, which is the same word as because. All right? So he gives this instruction to women and men because of something. He grounds it. This is what we call a ground linguistically. He grounds the argument in verses 13 and 14. He says, For Adam was formed first and then his wife Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, which is weird, right? Because we know that Adam was deceived by the serpent. We know he ate from the same fruit. We know he became a sinner and a transgressor. So we have to ask, well, what is Paul? How are they different, though? How is Eve um, especially deceived or deceived in a, in a unique way that relates to these instructions for, for the church when it comes to preaching? All right, so, but, but let's just start with this. The, to keep it simple, why are women not allowed to preach? Verse 13 says, because Adam was formed first and Eve was second. That's why. Adam was formed first and Eve was formed second. This is back in Genesis 2. The second chapter of the Bible gives the story of this. So there is this um, general nod here to the idea of what the Bible calls headship, uh, that Adam was a leader. He was the provider. He gave uh, 
names to, to the animal kingdom. He was called to, uh, with the task to care uh, and govern, and uh, in this case, to, get, to give care to his wife as well, all right? But here's what happened. So in Genesis 3, and I know I'm going really fast here. I'd encourage you guys to go back and read Genesis 3 for context sometime, uh, but bear with me if you haven't read it. But the chapter after this happens, after they're created in Genesis 3, uh, the devil disguises himself as a serpent and approaches Eve, not Adam, which should send up red flags in our mind because the devil knew what he was doing. He was subverting God's order by not approaching the leader, by not approaching Adam. But when the serpent approached Eve, she ate the forbidden fruit and then, quote, gave some to her husband. This is from verse 6, which was a form of seeking to become like God, which is from verse 5, all right? Let me read from um, R. Kent Hughes, which is one commentator I consulted on this. I think he says this well. He's basically trying to understand um, how this relates to 1 Timothy 2, right? That's the big question. Why is Paul citing this story? And how does it relate to um, gender roles in in church gatherings? Here's what he has to say. This is really helpful. He's saying, Eve taught her husband. Adam's sin came from, quote, listening to his wife in the sense of heeding and following her instruction. He was taught by her, thereby putting himself under her authority and reversing God's good ordering of creation. All right, so did you see that? He's saying Eve, when Eve fed Adam the forbidden fruit, remember when God said, don't eat of this one tree, the serpent deceives and, and, and says, it's actually okay for you to do that. He says, just become your own gods, determine what is right and wrong yourself and all that stuff. But one thing going on here is you have Eve ate first, but then she fed her husband. And feeding and teaching are linked a lot in the Bible. Uh, Most notably when Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. Remember that in John 21, feed my sheep? He's saying, teach them. Teach them about me. Feed them the bread of my body. All right, so Eve fed, or i.e. taught, her husband. But Paul is saying Eve was deceived in that, and so was Adam. It should have never happened that way. It's a flip. All right? Here's the second thing, though. Uh, You you might be thinking at that point, I kind of see that, but that seems kind of arbitrary. I mean, is that really that big a deal? Um, The second piece is to say is to go further than that and to say there's still another layer, and it has to do with what the ordering of creation is would later come to say about Christ and the church and the gospel itself. But let me start to pull back the layer a little bit here by by saying this. Uh, God loves symbolism, all right? And I want to just really underline that for you. Some of you are just hearing that for the first time. You didn't know that. Uh, God loves a lot of things. God loves you. Uh, But God loves symbolism. And the... the, uh, truth is, oftentimes we don't, okay? Um, the more I study this issue and the more I talk to others, other pastors and people who agree with me and others who don't agree with me, with us, uh, the more I, I think that the issue really comes down to this, at least a big part of it comes down to this. Do we appreciate symbolism or not? Do we think it matters? Uh, a lot of times, you know, as Protestants who kind of veered from that a little bit, 
uh, at the Reformation in some capacity. We're part of a branch of Christianity as Baptists who kind of devalue it a little bit, but also Americans who are kind of born out of, you know, scientism and positivism, you know, and uh, determining truth by what we can see and touch. We just don't have as much of a category for, for symbolism, but we need to. See, here's the thing. If you believe that church gatherings and preaching is about the simple communication of information and learning, then you're going to hear 1 Timothy 2 and think, but aren't men and women equally proficient at teaching? And the answer to that question is, of course they are. The Bible never says any different. But the problem with that view on church is that's not what church is all about, and that's not what preaching is all about. Yes, it's about learning, but it's also meant by God to look a certain way so that the right truths are embodied symbolically about the gospel right alongside the teachings and the songs. All right, here's what I mean. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It's, Paul is uncovering the mystery of marriage here and says, when a husband loves his wife symbolic, or takes bullets for her, he symbolically portrays Christ loving the church. And a wife is a symbol of the church in the marriage when she receives his love and submits to him because it's a picture of the church receiving, receiving from Christ. There's that word again, if you remember that from Adam and Eve. When a, when a wife receives the love of her husband, she receives and, and not the other way around. Obviously, it goes both ways in a, in a marriage too. But in general, husbands love and women's respect or submit because husbands are symbols of Christ and wives are symbols of the church. Okay, here's the thing though. In the church, it's the same thing. Uh, so gender distinctions matter uh, because without them, the gospel story wouldn't be told rightly. We wouldn't have complementarity, Right? We look in the church then, and it's the same thing. The, the church is a family, right? The Bible calls the church a family from almost every angle imaginable. Pastors and elders are Christ figures. It's why some traditions call priests fathers. They, they represent the fatherhood of God. Um, and so pastors are Christ figures in the family, which is why they're supposed to be men. So when preaching happens, this is to go back to what I was saying about preaching and teaching being different. There's so much to say about this, but in short, when preaching happens, it is not the simple transmission of information. It's not a classroom. It's a holy moment when a Christ figure speaks and God the Father and God the Son speak through him. And when God speaks, he calls out and creates and saves and feeds and makes things out of nothing. Preaching then is a very masculine thing because it relates to Christ, the man, the second Adam. And we, the feminine church, the bride, all of us, men and women, who are spiritually in relation to God, we are in the feminine role, the new Eve, we receive from his hand. Okay? So this is the real reason why I think Paul is saying what he's saying. Just kind of put a bow on this or start to. Um, or actually here we see husbands uh, to wives, Christ to the church, male pastors and preachers um, serve as that loving, leading, um, masculine, giving uh, piece 
in relation to um, the rest of, rest of the church. This is how the Bible talks. Whether we like it or not, God cares about symbolism. He cares about not just what is said, but how and who is saying it because of what is symbolized in that moment, all right? And so here's the thing. To flip that around then would say the wrong thing, okay? The real reason that Eve feeding Adam was so wrong, the real reason a woman preaching is not allowed biblically is because it symbolizes the opposite of the gospel, and that is that humanity feeds God. This is crucial to see. This is everything to the argument because of what he grounds the argument in, but not just that, what the ground points to, what Adam and Eve point to later in the story, which is the second Adam and the second Eve. That is to say, Jesus and the church. The problem with Eve feeding, or the problem with, in a mixed-gender setting, a woman teaching with authority, is it would symbolically suggest in the room, whether we think this or not, that humanity is the one that instructs God, or humanity is the one who provides for God or feeds for God. But as we all know, or most of you, we don't feed God with our good works. We don't, he's not, he's not insufficient. We don't instruct him. We, we receive wholesale from him every day. But Eve sinned by trying to become like God or like the God figure in the story. And with preaching, it's the same thing. It's what, it's, again, wh- why is Paul doing this? It has nothing to do with the ability of one gender over another to speak well publicly or to understand scripture better. I mean, God knows Hiawatha exists today on the backbone of so many gifted, wise, and winsome women who teach the Bible so incredibly well, all right? Just to say that. But this has everything to do with the order of creation, which has everything to do with men being Christ figures and women being church figures, which in turn has everything to do with the gospel. Churches are not just places to learn about the gospel. They're places to see it with our eyes, whether in a husband taking a bullet for his wife or in a male elder preaching with authority and embodying God's creative let there be lights through sermons. Zephaniah 3.17, I think this is interesting too, uh, where God says, he will quiet you with his love. Um, See, quietness uh, in a mixed-gender setting for women is uh, not just a random, rote, prehistoric, outdated rule. When, when that happens, we're actually embodying the fact that before God, we are quiet. Before God is the feminine church, we are quiet. Because in the gospel, we have no self-defense. We have no return gift. We have no boasting. Just glad reception when he quiets us with his love. All right, let me, let me read here from Alistair Roberts, uh, who summarizes this pretty well. He says, Now, what is the office of the pastor to do? The office is, uh, in a large part, designed to represent the fatherly and husbandly form of authority in relation to the church. And so, it's proper that it's performed exclusively by men. That's one of the reasons why we had exclusively male priesthood in the Old Testament. God is not a mother. He's a father. And so, God's transcendence is symbolically, there's that word again, symbolically masculine. But yet with Scripture, within Scripture, a pastor stands for something as well. The pastor represents and symbolizes God's authority within the congregation. And we respond to motherly and fatherly authority differently. Not primarily because of distinct behaviors, but because of where that behavior comes from. The behavior coming from a mother has a different salience and a different resonance 
than the behavior coming from a father. And even if they did the exact same thing, it would be very different because one would be a father's action and the other a mother's. This is one of the reasons why priests and pastors are to be exclusively male because it is a fatherly form of authority that is being represented. Not a motherly, but a fatherly form of authority that's being represented. Okay? Um, Now, again, lots more to say about this, but I'm going to read this last verse, move us into that place of the weird, and try to put a cap on this um, because I think this is actually a big piece to his argument, uh, or he's trying to round it out here a little bit. He says, Yet, she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay. So the issue here with Paul is he just got done saying Eve became a transgressor. So then kind of the tension there is, well, that's, that seems unresolved. So how will she be made well? I mean, all of us, right? But in the story, how will Eve be saved? And Paul chooses to say, you know, give an answer to that question the most like confusing way possible, right? Like, save through, through childbearing? Like, okay, um, sure, right? But so for Paul, I, th- I think what he's saying, there's, there's different perspectives, and this is actually one of the most confusing verses in the whole New Testament. Um, most people acknowledge that. So I don't mean to be like not giving it, um, you know, a- enough spotlight here. I'm just going to say, I'd rather not just teach through it and give you all of them. I just want to talk, what I think it means, what a lot of people think it means. I think what he's saying is, Paul is saying she is saved through the childbirth or the childbearing, the bearing of the one child, the seed of Eve, who was mentioned in this passage, right? Uh, Who is Jesus Christ. Um, Something that women can uniquely associate with as childbearers or the ones who get pregnant in life. That the idea in the Bible that God gives life to the barren, that glory follows suffering. Um, as, I, as I say here, like saved through a, a type of suffering that leads to glory as we see in both childbirth and as well as in Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, or saved through something that we can't do ourselves, right? Because women can't bear a child on their own or they can't get pregnant on their own. So um, what, what I think Paul is saying here is she'll be saved through these ideas. Um, and, and as a woman, though, she can like especially associate with them or feel them, right? Because it doesn't mean, but all these truths are for all of us, whether we are women who have kids or not, or whether we're men, because men can't fully uh, empathize here, right? But I like this because um, I like that he ends with something only women can experience. And not that it's the whole thing, but I like that he just got done with this preaching thing where women might be like, dude, you know, to the preaching thing, like, dude. And now he talks about childbearing where men might be like, dude, you know, how am I going to be saved then, you know? And, and I think he's kind of like getting that there are masculine images to the gospel and feminine, you know? And, and please hear this, okay, wherever you're coming from, it's okay that we're not both. It really is. We don't have to fully understand or feel both. Some of you are men. Some of you are women. There are only two genders, and we only get one. All right? It's okay. We don't, we, don't, we don't all have to be doing everything. We need each other. We need God. When men preach authoritatively, some men in the church, something about the gospel is displayed there. When a woman gives birth, carries a child, something about the gospel is embodied in the act of that. The promise of Christ, the Son of God being born into our plight, 
through woman the, the, and spirit, the grace of new life. All right? And so, so let me just say, let me say this start to wrap up here. Uh, I realize it's a scratch the surface. Uh, they, it's one thing to understand or start to understand this passage. And I, and I hope there are ripple effects here that ripple out into all of your minds and lives today that I didn't get to talk about, like marriages. I hope there's a ripple effect for husbands saying, how can I die for my wife more? Uh, a ripple effect of people wanting to preach maybe and be a pastor. Some of you may be wanting to be in that role here or elsewhere, and that's great. A ripple effect of how all of us listen to sermons, uh, not just as an information passing, but God actually speaking in a loving, fatherly way. A ripple effect for how we think about church, how we think about gender in general in an age increasingly hostile to what the Bible is, is saying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's one thing to like get our mind around it and to think through, through these ripple effects. It's another thing, though, to hear God call out to you from within it. Okay, and, and that's how I want to end. I hope that you got a glimpse of this, a taste of this, when, when I was just teaching and preaching through some of this stuff already. But if you didn't, and just by way of kind of going through this again, let's, let me walk through what I think are six things God wants us to hear as a church about him with the language employed in this passage. Okay, let's read through these. First one is, God is saying, I am slow to anger, but I'm quick to love. He's saying, I am your sufficient clothing, covering your shame and guilt. You don't need to do anything to turn my head. It's already been turned to the ground in my death and turned towards you in love. Number three, I, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, have fed you with the fruit of my body from the tree of my cross. Hear me in the voice of my under-shepherds and see me in the men I call into that role. Four, I have called you out of, or I have called out to you in the darkness. I have said, let there be light into your soul. That's how, that's why you're saved. I've called into your tombs. You never need to give to me. I will always give to you. See, the themes in Adam and Eve, the themes in 1 Timothy 2, those are like, those are symbols, right? Those are the surfacey implications of what the undercurrents of, of, of the gospel and grace are throughout all of reality. And that is, humanity cannot pay God back and should never try. But all the time, 100% of them receive from him. Receive, receive, receive. All right, number five. I, the bridegroom, have laid down my life for you, the bride. I have gone before you to slay your dragons and take your bullets and to calm your fears. And, and last, Jesus saying, I am the seed of Eve. I am the serpent crusher. I am the bruised one, born of woman and spirit. The one who came to save you by grace so you might be born again. Something you could never do yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this passage. As We thank you for it because it's a gift. It's from you. Um, we thank you for it, especially for those last reasons, because um, you are a God who cares more uh, about the transmission of truth uh, than about archaic rules. Um, you care about your glory and your fame. 
We care about what's best for us, which is to hear these gospel truths from the Bible, to read them with our eyes, to hear them spoken by other people with our ears, but to see it as well with our eyes. And so God, help us to be a church that upholds gender distinctions. Uh, so the drama of complementarity, because we are complementary, we compliment you, God. We are not the same as you. The drama of complementarity can be properly played out, uh, whether in a sermon setting, a church-gathered setting, whether in a marriage, um, or, or even elsewhere. Um, God, we pray that you would help us to be people of the truth, to bask in the fact that you give to us and we cannot feed, should not feed you, or instruct you, or, or give to you, but always constantly be in that position of being a receiver, a receiver of your blood receiver of your grace that you spilt on that cross 2,000 years ago for aimless sinners like us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.